welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners Mike Killian and Forrest. Google recently held a developer conference and people were tweeting, Google Assistant just called and booked an appointment for a haircut for someone. It's wild. It's crazy. And while some were amazed, some were also thinking about how soon it may take for someone to figure out how to social engineer or even gain access through automated exploitation techniques. And some expressed a need for ground rules. And we've come a long way from having to call someone on the phone to make an appointment. And we all know the benefits of having technology work on our behalf. And based on what we've seen with IoT devices so far, what are potential security concerns or whether or not we're over worrying? Do we even need ground rules? Hey, this is Mike. I think there's a big security concern and it's already sort of proven out because there's a technology that exists now called TTY, which is what uh, deaf people use as a service to use the phone system. And so it lets them type in and then the era before computers were so powerful prevalent, someone at the phone company or through the contractors would relay exactly what was being typed. And there was a big thing about how these were used often for scam calls to the elderly, for trying to rip off places um, for all sorts of reasons, because it is sort of that proxy between themselves and you know the people they're ripping off. And this just seems like a wildly automated and easy way to do that same sort of, you know, fraudulent attacks and calls and things. Hi, this is Kelly. There were, in some of the posts that I was reading, um, there were a couple of really interesting points that brought up. One is not even about security, but it's definitely worth addressing, is that, you know, what's the societal impact of something like this? Getting people used to the dealing with bots, especially if they can talk to them. And uh, one of the, the people made a tweet saying something like the, you know, challenge isn't that these automated processes are going to, you know, take over for people. It's that people are going to start treating other people like bots. And I think, Mike, you even brought this up on a previous episode, is that, you know, our conversations and interactives are so terse anymore and brief that we've lost a, a lot of humanity in dealing with other people. And the other point, too, that I thought was really interesting is the fact that this is rife for social engineering attacks, especially the fact that we can gather so much information from social networks and other places, you know, the power of the search engine. And if we can take that and translate that, we can automate a lot of the, the scam calls, like a, a bank or a credit card. They can gather some of your information. We know all of that is out there from the Equifax breach. Imagine if you could index that and then have one of these uh, very human sounding bots call up the your bank or credit card to do something malicious and pass some of the verification checks. And I'm doing the air quotes because they're all pretty terrible across the board. This is Forrest. I think that, you know, maybe there's going to be some, you know, high profile attacks based on this. But overall, I mean, we're already driving towards more and more previously phone-based interactions being online. You know, things like Open Table or Yelp, you know, for like booking tables and making reservations at restaurants, which used to be exclusively by the phone. And I just think this will just drive that further in that direction because people probably feel a lot more comfortable, you know, directly interfacing. Thanks, guys. And we had a listener, Tony Dolphin, recently wrote in iTunes. The podcasts go in-depth and keeps me updated on what's going on in the IT world. I'm certain I got a small edge over my peers thanks to that blog. So thank you, Tony Dolphin. If you're a regular listener and enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, we'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. And your nice reviews will also help others find us. To learn more, please visit ronus.com review. 
So let's continue with the theme of turning people into devices. Abbott, which is a health device maker and a bunch of other entities, they're recently requiring an upgrade to firmware installed on a bunch of health devices. And it said that the update, it's intended to prevent anyone other than your doctor from changing your device settings. And the criticism is that turning the physician into a medical device genius bar employee seems like a questionable choice. And it says that the method doesn't scale and we're ready have overworked physicians and we shouldn't turn them into figuring out device security problems. I used to work for 3M Health Information Services and in hospitals and around a lot of these things for a long time. Going into that world, coming from like the enterprise IT world, I was really shocked at how bad the security is on a lot of these devices where you know, in the article, it mentions that, you know, most of these things have like hard-coded admin passwords that are one password to set them up forever or individual unencrypted, you know, wireless connections and things that it's really an issue that, you know, security was never considered because there's so many regulations about it. It's almost like the viewpoint was no one would mess with this. And I think two things have really turned against that. One, there's so many crazy hacks and exploits out there that are happening both automatically and, you know, deliberately, where something gets on the network and just tries to hit every single IP address and might accidentally pick up one of these devices if it's inside the hospital. And then separately, there's a real movement for people to take more control of these, less with like pacemakers. I think more with things like insulin pumps, where there's like those loop devices that are basically work as a AI pancreas. So uh, a lot happening with this. I think this comes down to something that seems to be a running theme on this show is we get people or organizations, I should say, whose core competency is not IT or security car manufacturers, you know, health device manufacturers, things like that, who are jamming technology somewhere where it's never historically been. And it's not their forte. Um, this is not their area of expertise to design these things. So I think one of the big things we'd have to consider is, you know, if obviously this train's not stopping anytime soon, it would behoove them if there was a, an industry, even a cottage industry that did even uh, outsource pen testing, something like that for these, you know, automakers, device manufacturers to test their security before it rolls out into production. And that would save, I think, time from having to build it in-house in that competency because, again, it's not core to their business. But it would help kind of overall security uh, in general if somebody was looking and testing these things, taking it into account before it hit um, the market. I've seen industries, especially in the highly regulated ones, where making changes to these devices, especially if you have to go through like the FDA or something like that, the sheer amount of paperwork to patch something is a lot of people looking to go, well, I'm just not going to do that. You know, the reams of paperwork to make even very moderate or minute changes is is overwhelming to the point where people are like, well, eh, it's not really worth the effort. You know, we'll get to it eventually if we get to it. But to, to try to think about this, especially if you're not part of this world, you know, I was part of a project where they had to get FDA approval to change the monitors on the computers because there were these high DPI grayscale uh, monitors that were used for radiology reads. And you never think about like, oh yeah, the monitor on the computer, that's a medical device. But it is in that context. And it's just a very different world with, you know, the security landscape and how things are treated. But you're, you're absolutely right, Killian. It's a, it's a real challenge to update and change these things. You know, it's interesting just because, I mean, I think these things in a, in a large case are from industries, uh, 
you know, industrial control systems are similar, I think, to this, where security was never really considered in day one. You know, when they first started, you know, building these devices where networking and network security wasn't really a consideration, physical security went security, and if you had physical security, you'd have to worry about anything else. You know, if you didn't have access to the pacemaker, you don't have access to the pacemaker. But, you know, now I think with networking being brought into it, I mean, you're in a situation where security hasn't been part of the design process from day one. We've talked about it before on the show where, you know, hopefully more and more parts of industries and industries altogether will be focusing, you know, design with security in mind from day one. And actually, speaking to the idea of, you know, these physicians having to be involved in sort of the, the information technology maintenance of these devices, I, I wonder if there's actually, like, room for, you know, in a couple, you know, maybe a decade or two, we'll start to see, like, a new, uh, like, technician specialty, you know, that, that deals with medical device technicians, you know, to kind of alleviate some of the technical work from physicians in that very specific space. Well, there's, there's another part of this ecosystem, which is the device manufacturers. And again, something I was kind of shocked about when I got into the medical field was what type of relationship they have with the people doing these surgeries. I did most of the work uh, in orthopedics, but it wasn't uncommon to have, you know, the actual people making the implants and things in the operating room, observing the surgery, bringing the items in special because they're thousands and thousands of dollars and that they're really part of that. And I, I don't think it's the case where the physician is going to be like, all right, I'm going to upgrade your firmware now. I think they'll have to sign off on it and, you know, it'll be part of their staff and things. But I'm hopeful that it's something that is part of, we think of it almost as hygiene. Oh, your network, you have to keep up to date on, you know, antivirus and, you know, what's happening and keep your patches up to date on your servers so you don't get exploited. And then I hope it, it just becomes a routine thing for all of these, you know, health implant devices because there's only going to be more. Here's at least the, the reassuring thing is these devices have the capability to get an update. It's not right once system on a chip or whatever they're running on there. So at least they can get firmware. The other day there was an article in The Economist and the opinion article wrote about being trapped in self-service hell. And he said that these days it's often impossible to get a human in any form. And a lot of the big problems is that startups, they currently aim not to have a phone number. And cyber criminals, they've really embraced this loophole and scammers, they've been filling in the tech support void. And the article, it's recommending that companies without a phone number write on their website that they don't have a phone number support line. Do you think companies should have telephone support lines? And what's the real root of the problem? Are you thinking you can't really blame scammers for taking advantage of the company's shortcomings? I don't think they're actually providing support. I think they're they're trying to fulfill any need where people are searching in order to trick people and take their money. And they'll say, okay, we can do X for you, but it's going to cost $10. We need your credit card. And they don't do what they say. <laughs> I don't think it's a good thing. I guess I would classify this as somewhat a, a different threat, that there is this sort of reputational security that, you know, companies need to think about. They need to think about it in terms of, you know, are other, you know, websites going up that, you know, use our name that are pretending to be us in some way? Are there phishing emails going out with our domain on it that we need to set up, you know, records and to monitor and track? And this just falls into that, that there's, you know, people that are scamming, pretending to be the company when it's not. To think about that as part of of, you know, your reputational security for you, 
for your company in the same way you would direct attacks. I think if you look at it from a business perspective, it's starting to make sense. Just like we talked about the uh, the Google Voice bot and things like that and the chat bots on so many websites that it's a way that you can make people more efficient. You have to maintain less staff. You don't have to either outsource to data centers or maintain on-prem staff or in-company staff to handle these calls if you can automate a lot of this. And you see that. But I think there's still a certain amount of the population that does need some way to contact a human about a problem. So I'm not sure, as Mike said, the reputational damage is worth it for whatever that cost savings is to not have at least some form of contact information. Even if you go on the website and publish, hey, we don't have a support phone number, I guess that's a step, but it seems like you're just kind of skirting around the problem as opposed to addressing the problem because there's still that void there for a certain portion of the population who's going to look for that type of contact. Yeah, I think there's some people who really aren't very comfortable, you know, interacting with support directly, you know, only through chat or something like that. So, I mean, they're going to be looking for a phone number pretty much no matter what. I mean, maybe you can put it behind some kind of, you know, first you need to go through the chat for, uh, you know, 30 seconds or something like that before you're given the option to call. I mean, you know, maybe there's a way around it that you can kind of get best of both worlds. But I mean, you know, I think the the scammers here in this case are, are filling a void that there's a there's a motivation there for people to, you know, use the phone instead. Well, it's funny. I had a friend or I have a friend, he doesn't work there anymore, but he used to sell, I'm trying to look at the word, but um, one of the automated phone systems. And I think even you can experience a lot of the efficiency gains from that as well too, because they're, they're fairly sophisticated anymore. And we're getting closer with the voice recognition to being able to direct people to the call. So having some type of phone system or interaction and still maintaining a, a low headcount for employee persons at the company answering the phones eventually, I think you can still see that and maybe get out of the trap of giving the scammers free reign. And back to kind of Cindy's point, of course you can blame the scammers. You know, just because the companies haven't thought of this doesn't mean that this is free reign for something to exploit. So, you know, I guess it's creative, but that admiration only goes so far. These people are still out there being horrible human beings. (laughs) Well, I guess I put this, I think the term you're looking for was IVR, which is interactive voice response, which are the automated systems that say like, say your name say your social security number, sort of the the flip side of what we're talking about with Google. Just because a company doesn't offer something doesn't mean that they like you can't blame them for this. I, I put this in the same realm as like typo squatting, that if someone types in Gmail, M-I-A-L, instead of A-I-L.com, you know, they type in the slightly wrong domain and they go to something else, that it shouldn't pretend to be that thing and be like, well, you know, Google didn't register Gmail instead of Gmail.com, so therefore they can be blamed for this. So it's still, I, I still look at this as just horribly scammy behavior. Oh, no, it, it is absolutely horrible. Uh, horribly scammy behavior. Um, but, you know, you look at Google, you look at all these major corporations, they take into account, again, your example of that misspelled domain, uh, domain name information, that's that's something common. So again, I think this is just going to have to go into the toolbox of, you know, someone's going to scam it. So we're going to have to take steps to try and avoid it. I don't really like those automated voice systems. I prefer those where you insert your phone number and then they call you back because you have a problem and I hate going through the motions of what is your name? What are you calling about? And then none of those options are for what you need. And it's literally going to be the Google thing we talked in the beginning calling you back now. <laughs> so finally, there is an article about how your digital footprint can match the predictive powers of a FICO credit score. And I just wonder if you guys judge your friends by the kind of email service provider or cell phone they use. Because apparently, depending on how you structure your email address, say, for instance, if your email address is InfoSecPro123, that that would ding you against your credit score. And that's 
not as preferred as like your name. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts about leaving a breadcrumb of a data point for lenders every time you do something online. Like, I think you're in big trouble you know, with your email, qd367 at hotmail.com. You're never going to get that loan for your next Tesla at this rate. It's uh, AOL.com. It's not Hotmail. So, and yes, I am a cutie. So I feel it's descriptive. It's not just, you know, for fun. You know, and it's 367. That's like way more days than, uh, than in the year. So, you know, you're going above and beyond. Well, I, you know, one thing to, to think about with this, because I think there's a lot of negative stuff, and I think we'll get to that. But one sort of positive thing is that the traditional credit, you know, scoring stuff is so coarse in how it tries to sort this stuff out. To give you the score, it's based on, you know, so few data points and such an old timey sort of way of thinking about these things. And, you know, it's not reflective of people's actual behavior. So it does make sense to me that there's a lot of things out there in the world that could do a better job, that would be more accurate. And, you know, we all pay in a sense for, you know, bad credit, for frauds, for all sorts of things. So I, I think that could be a potential good here that, you know, more accurate credit ratings could help a lot of people and a lot of businesses and you know, in general. I think it is open <laughs> that we need to choose good signals in that, not just any signal we can find, if only because I think there can be a real self-fulfilling prophecy with this stuff. There's a lot of different things beyond this. I know that previously, I think we talked about how Google Street View could actually do a pretty good job of determining uh, your household income just based upon the cars in the street. And that isn't something we think about, but that could, you know, factor into stuff as well. So good, good and bad here. I, the other thing I thought about, uh, reading, you know, when I was reading this article was uh, all the iPhone fanboys are have got the pat on the back, like, oh yeah, I I am superior because I have an iPhone over those dirty Android people because they can't pay their bills. But I think that's I I'd almost have to look at the data because I find I understand why that would be the case. You know, the cheapest iPhone is still a couple hundred bucks, but you can get a, an Android phone for a very reasonable price or free anymore. But I would wonder about the scale too. How many more Android devices, just in general, are out there in the world versus iPhone devices? So I wonder, what's the scale of this that we're looking at? I don't know, Mike, me, you might actually know what the percentage of iPhone versus Android in the market. I know Android dominates because they own many of the phones, especially the low-cost options. Yeah, I don't I don't know the exact details. And I think, like with a lot of this stuff, I think it does need to be separated from sort of the aggregate statistical approach to things and the individual, where I think it is true in general, maybe this one set of behaviors, you know, ties to phone model. But in the particular, I think it gets much more difficult. Even just like in my own family, my kids like play with my hand-me-down phone. They use that for all sorts of stuff. And I would not trust them to have a decent credit score. You know, I just wouldn't. I think also some of that stuff is, I don't know how this necessarily plays into credit worthiness, but I think some of that is is correlation and we're assuming a little bit of causation sometimes. You know, I'm wondering how often, you know, we're seeing, oh, there's a correlation between, I know this was a I feel like people talked about it a little bit more a couple years ago, but I'm sure it's still true. You know, with resumes and like the email address that's listed on a resume, you know, potentially being an indicator people were using for hiring, you know, again, with, you know, those sort of outdated, you know, domains, allegedly outdated domains like Hotmail and AOL and Yahoo and things like that, or addresses with, you know, numbers in them and things like that, you know, how it impacted hiring. And, you know, in that case too, I wonder, you know, what's the, what's the cause and what's the just sort of a correlation there? I'd think that the correlation would be that if you're using outdated products and services that you're not someone who's always learning. If you're not always learning, then you're not going to get the promotion to buy your Tesla. I don't know. I'd, I'd counter that just a little bit. 
that I don't always think like the new hotness is somehow markedly better than what's been out there, you know, just with the with the way that, you know, apps and things like that change. I don't know if that's always the case, you know, just because you're not on whatever's the next thing from Twitter or whatever. Does it matter? And should it matter? You know, maybe it's an indicator of if you spend so much time on the newest and hottest social media that maybe you shouldn't get the promotion either because you're not doing whatever it is you're supposed to be doing for work. <laughs> well, and I, I think there is more and more sort of like a digital grooming that happens as people, you know, really try to shape their online presence and really try to show only their best side. And, you know, that manifests in both like choosing deliberately, you know, what the domain is for the e your email or, you know, and, you know, exactly what you post where and under what persona and, you know, in what context where. I, and I think that's probably the biggest thing is that, you know, the Internet just obliterates context so often. And so, you know, what's a fun in-joke between me and my high school friends on Facebook, if taken in a different context, would turn out to be something horrible. You know, we're joking about the team mascot, but it turns out that, you know. Grizzly bears mean something else in other communities. So, you know. That's true. When you're reading something online versus listening to an interview, it can be construed in a completely different way. So that's a good point. We're taking a break this week from the tool of the week. And so instead, I'm wondering if there's anything that you've learned recently in the security world that everyone should know that we didn't cover this week. Well, I'll share one thing from the GDPR because it kind of relates to what we spoke about today, which is that um, I think there's a lot of focus on, you know, deleting your data and rights of privacy. Um, but a lesser known aspect of GDPR is you are allowed to ask companies how they are algorithmically processing your information. So in the context of, ex and it applies to exactly this, that if a company is deciding your credit, credit worthiness based upon, you know, the certain algorithm, you are by law allowed to ask them, what exactly is it that that you're searching for. And as a corollary to that, you're allowed to ask for a person to intervene and say, well, you judge me this way automatically, but you know, there's a reason I'm still using Hotmail, which is that I've had it. I was the, the product manager for Microsoft when it launched. And so I'm very proud of this. And that's a very different role than someone who just happened to pick it up uh, and keep it forever. Wait, just in case people don't know what GDPR means, what is it? This is the General Data Protection Regulations uh, from the EU. For EU residents and complying companies elsewhere, that as part of compliance with that, you need to be able to respond to subject data requests, which is a fancy way of saying if uh, your users or people that you interact with, you have personal information about them, they are allowed to ask you for their information, that they still have rights to it, even though they submitted a web form to you or happen to browse your website for a few minutes. I've been on a whirlwind tour of... Uh... Uh, events and things like that over the last basically month. And one of the biggest topics was GDPR. And I think a lot of people are sweating it because it is, I think, coming to effect in about, about two weeks here or so. The, maybe a little the bit 25th. So the 25th of, of May for anybody who, and I'm not sure when it's going to go out. But yeah, that was always a, a big question, especially again with this deadline looming is, you know, what's going to happen. Uh, we talked about it the other week. Google just did lose a, a court case uh, about um, some of the right to be forgotten aspects of it. And I think one of the biggest fears is answering those questions about your data, you know, what you're storing, how you're using it, how you're processing it. Have you heard that other companies are closing or shutting down their business because they don't want to deal with GDPR? Well, certainly there's, it's going 
going to change the business model of a lot of companies. You know, we're I'm in the marketing group, and something I've seen is a lot of the marketing companies, like there's a few that have either they're sort of burying their head in their sand, in the sand, not their own personal sand, but you know, the general <laughs> sand, and <laughs> pretending like it's not going to affect them, or they've gone completely the other way where they have said like, okay, we're an A-B testing company, so we're going to test changes on your website on your behalf. But in order to do that, we need to, you know, top to bottom change how our product works. So it works, you know, privacy first, that it works in a way that respects users and doesn't, you know, hinder them or mess them up or take their information in ways that uh, would harm them. I think there's a lot happening with this. Unroll me, they're no longer going to service EU residents. Well, that's, that's actually really important, though, too, is it's not just about European companies. You know, it's actually just anybody who's a citizen of the EU, you know, let's say they've been living in the US. I mean, any company in the US that's dealing with their their data, I mean, they're under that regulation. You know, anybody touching EU citizen data is. Well, and it's so I think it's even more subtle than that. And so I think it's EU residents. I think that's the actual technical term, but I think that's almost doesn't matter. And the reason I say that is that what I've seen happening so much is that in the B2B world, it's really coming down to, oh, if you want to do business at all with any company in Europe that's under these regulations, you need to be GDPR compliant. And so it's a huge motivating factor to go to a company and, and maybe the EU represents 15, 20% of their customers and to say like, we need you to say that you're going to be GDPR compliant and to prove that and to go along with these regulations in order for us to do business with you. And that is a compelling thing. I have seen many, many US companies and companies all over the world deciding that, hey, we're going to take this on in large part just to preserve all that revenue that they have. I mean, as an extension of that, like too, just looking at some of the regulations, if you were to go that route, the side benefit too is you'd automatically get in a lot of cases compliance with other types of regulations as well too, just by going along with uh, GDPR. You know, you'd have a pretty significant dent in like HIPAA, for example, or even PCI, just how you store and deal with some of that data. Different, completely different in terms of the data subject actual question, things like that too. But if you kind of really take GDPR to heart, you get a, a significant security benefit in other areas too, which you can realize. It's not 100%, but you put a good dent in it. Well, I think that's really the intent of the regulation. I mean, the intent of the regulation, because what's interesting is that there's PCI regs out there, which are very strict and very detail-oriented about like, oh, use this version of TLS SSL, and these ciphers don't use this one. And, you know, the GDPR is not that for, for good and bad. It's much more, hey, take reasonable steps to secure information. Hey, take reasonable steps to know like where personal information is going. And when you phrase it like that, it seems stunning the number of companies that say, well, we're shutting down now because uh, we don't want to have to deal with writing down where we're getting data from, what we're doing with it, who it's going to, and getting user consent for that. Right. It flows the other direction as well. Again, PCI is very detail-oriented and it can certainly help with meeting some of those know what we have and where it's going to reasonably protected criteria. So yeah, but GDPR is just a punch to the face of the idea of like, oh yeah, we're just going to keep this data in case. I have just seen that fly out the window and it's much more now like, how can we get rid of this personal data? This, uh, this service, what are they doing for us? They take personal data, but we don't use them that much. Great. We're axing them. What's this one do? Oh, we can give them a token instead of an email address. Great. Let's do that instead. So I think there's already been a huge positive effect to it just in terms of that, just in terms of raising everyone's awareness level and thought and just a little bit of contemplation with like how all these things are coming together. Well, what I love is, uh, you know, some of the, the credit rep uh, reporting bureaus, you know, like, uh, like the Equifax and things like that to start to take some of these GDPR hints 
more to heart as opposed to storing every piece of information about every single person in the whole world to develop these scores. Well, in the United States, at least. Maybe we could reduce the effect of uh, a data breach like we've seen. It's almost a matter of time anymore, it seems like, for, for the next one to happen. Yeah, you know, I would encourage anyone who's listening to this in a company, even if you're not going out to be GDPR compliant, if you just like sit down in an Excel spreadsheet, just put down like, here's all the companies we interact with that can take personal information. Here's the data points they take. Here's how long they store it. Here is where they keep it and who to contact in case there's an issue. That right there would improve the security and privacy posture of almost any company. And it costs almost nothing and it can only benefit you. (laughs) Thanks to Mike Buckby, Killian Englert, Forrest Temple and all our listeners for joining us today. Please let us know what you think about our podcast by going to iTunes to rate and review our show. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.